Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Have you ever eaten an entire Costco-sized bag of munchies for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Um, <laughs> I haven't. I just did. So <laughs> I'm proud of you. Excuse me for uh, my my flatulence. <laughs> I'm not even mad. I'm impressed. I honestly, it's been my dinner two times this week, and uh, I've regretted it each time. But yet I. <laughs> can't keep going back (laughs) i uh recently bought a bag of chips at walmart or not walmart at costco Mm -hmm. and normally if i get a bag of chips at like walmart i could probably eat the whole bag like in a movie like during a movie um but the costco size bags i was like wow this is gonna last (laughs) yeah you'd think and it uh, has. So mm. I'm proud of you. <laughs> I just don't want them to go stale, you know? I'm just trying to... <laughs> I'm thinking That's fair. For That's my good. future self. A hundred percent. Well, welcome back, guys, to Paranormal. We are here, your two favorite non-investigative, spooky, professional podcasters. And we are, <laughs> we are back with a regular episode of Paranormal and... I think we've got a real good one for you this time. Yeah, I'm really not that any of the other episodes aren't the really good, (laughs) but this one is really I think they're really compelling stories. Really good, yeah, really really good. (laughs) So, yeah, do you want Mm -hmm. to go into horoscopes and then tell them the the theme of the episode? Yeah, let's do horoscopes first. We'll make them sweat. We'll make yeah, let's make them sweat a little bit. Okay, sounds good. Oh, wow. This one. If if conflict arises in your world, Gemini, you must keep in mind that there is no one else to blame except you. Oh, really? Okay. Let's talk about this. Keeping your sights set on one goal is useful as you concentrate all your energy towards that one thing. At the same time, you may be losing perspective on what's going on around you. Make sure you continue to be a team player by keeping an eye out for the people in the wings. Ooh. Fuck I don't you, know if you're going to like that one. <laughs> There's, con- yeah, there. W- okay, spot on about conflict today. Yeah, yeah. Not spot on about it being my fault. Uh-huh. I, like, I... I- I definitely didn't do anything wrong. Uh, and watch out for the team players. I don't have any team players, it seems. So I'll just says, continue yeah. on my own. <laughs> so. yeah. Sorry, it says what? Look it out says for make what? sure you continue to be a team player. Oh, well, there's no there's no one that's a part of my team. So right. I'll just continue so. trucking by myself. So great. Thanks. That's, that's, that's Thanks, Horoscope. <laughs> okay leo you need to learn an important lesson and follow through as you strive for perfection you may get the feeling that nothing is ever fully completed try not to be so hard on yourself the work that you've finished so far is more than likely much better than what most people could ever accomplish oh. put, the, put the final touches on whatever you're doing and move on I have a feeling this struck a chord that is you today. fucking crazy spot on about <laughs> yes. Honestly, this okay. is something I struggle with constantly. Like I constantly feel like I could be making something better or doing something more or adding more to something and mm-hmm. it just delays the process and then I end up getting crazy anxiety when I actually have to show people or launch Mm -hmm. it because I'm like that could have been better and then half the time when I put less effort into something everyone is like completely wowed by it and I'm like oh why don't I just stop fucking (laughs) getting in my own head about it every single time and just 
delivering it to people when it's like to me half done but to them it's like oh no this is great let's just move forward rather than me like literally busting my balls to do something that no one's even gonna notice like no one's gonna notice those little details that I obsess over so right yeah that is very accurate and so you got some accurate horoscopes today yes today has been wise words thank you for that I needed that (laughs) okay um do you want to introduce our theme yeah so we've chosen the theme of the devil made me do it because the new the new conjuring movie is coming out soon um it's out it's out Oh, I didn't even realize mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the new Conjuring movie is out. is out. So we are doing uh, two stories about people who blamed their, I guess, um, crimes on being possessed by the devil. So yes, I'm excited ma'am. about this one. Oh, yeah. OK, so mine is is based upon exactly the story of um, the Conjuring Devil, mm-hmm. The Devil Made Me Do It case. It is around the trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. I did watch the movie. This The movie takes a very d- different approach to the story. It's not about do, yeah. It's not about the trial. It's not about all of the things that actually occurred. They basically base the movie around the Warrens and their investigation. And okay, well, all their sense. kind of other things involved with around this trial, I guess. So, um, but that's not, I'm going to focus on the actual, the actual event and the yes. background of the event and the trial itself and what all unfolded there. And we'll add some Ed and Lorraine commentary as they were <laughs> directly related and part of this um, uh, event that occurred. So perfect. Before I get into the story, I will say I got my information from the New York Post.com, the haunting real story behind the conjuring, oxygen.com, true crime, uh, conjuring the devil made me do it, and Arnie Johnson's trial, as well as the trial of Arnie Johnson um, from Wikipedia. So, insanity, self defense, and passion are some of the usual reasons attached to a not guilty plea during a murder trial. One you don't hear very often, however, is Satan. The trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, also known as the Devil Made Me Do It case, is the first known court case in the United States in which the defense sought to prove innocence based upon the defendant's claim of demonic possession and denial of personal responsibility for the crime. On November 24, 1981, in Brookfield, Connecticut, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was convicted of first-degree manslaughter for the killing of his landlord, Alan Bono. According to testimony by the Glatzel family, 11-year-old David Glatzel had played host to a demon after witnessing a number of increasingly ominous occurrences involving David, where David regularly saw a man with big black eyes, a thin face with animal features, and jagged teeth, pointed ears, horns and hooves, and that the creature told him to beware. As his condition worsened, the boy would growl, hiss, and quote passages from Paradise Lost. Exhausted and terrified, his parents decided to enlist the aid of Ed and Lorraine Warren in a last-ditch effort to cure David. The Glatzel family, along with the Warrens, then proceeded to have multiple priests petition the church to have a formal exorcism performed on David. The process continued for several days, concluding when, according to those present, a demon fled the child's body and took up residence within Arnie. These events were were documented in the book The Devil in Connecticut by Gerard Brittle. Several months later, Arnie killed his landlord during a heated conversation. His defense lawyer argued in court that he was possessed but the judge ruled that such a defense could never be proven and was therefore infeasible in a court of law. Arnie was subsequently convicted, though he only served five of a 10 to 20 year sentence. So what really happened to David Glatzel and was Arnie Johnson really possessed by the devil to the point that he murdered someone? Well, here are the events that led up to the trial. So Arnie Cheyenne Johnson and Debbie Glatzel, David's sister, who was Arnie's girlfriend at the time, provided first-hand accounts 
for the version of events in the Discovery Channel's A Haunting, the episode called Where Demons Dwell. They did not believe in demonic activities themselves, but asserted that paranormal activity began after they went to clean up a rental property they had just acquired. David recollected that an old man appeared, pushing and terrifying him. The couple initially thought David was using the old man as an excuse to avoid cleaning, but David informed them that the old man had vowed to harm the Glatzels if they moved into the rental home. David's visions of the old man included the man appearing as a demonic beast who muttered Latin and threatened to steal his soul. Although the family allegedly heard strange noises coming from the attic, no one but David ever witnessed the old man. After David experienced night terrors, exhibited strange behavior, and obtained unexplained scratches and bruises, the family then called upon the services of a Catholic priest, who attempted to bless the house. The terrified family concluded that the house was evil and would no longer continue to rent it. However, David's visions worsened and began to occur in the daytime as well. Twelve days after the original incident, the family summoned the self-proclaimed demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren to assist. Lorraine allegedly witnessed a black mist materialize next to David, an apparent indication of a dark presence. Debbie and her mother told the Warrens that they had seen David being beaten and choked by invisible hands and that red marks had appeared on his neck afterward. David had started to growl, hiss, speak in otherworldly voices, and recite passages from the Bible or Paradise Lost. His mother, Judy Glatzel, and the Warrens claimed that in the house, plates levitated, rocking chairs flew through the air, and a toy dinosaur walked around. The Glatzels recounted how each night a family member would remain awake with David as he suffered through spasms and convulsions. After receiving a prognosis of multiple possessions from the Warrens, David was subjected to three lesser exorcisms. Lorraine asserts that David levitated, ceased breathing for a time, and even demonstrated the supernatural ability of precognition, specifically in relation to the manslaughter Johnson would later commit. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Speaking with people in 1981, Ed Warren said that he and his wife knew after these exorcisms that 43 demons were inside David. They demanded names and David gave us 43. However, Father Nicholas Greco of the Diocese of Pritchport told people at the time that while the situation with David and the Glatzels was investigated by the church, no exorcism was ever performed because the family would not submit David to necessary psychological tests beforehand. So my understanding is that Ed and Lorraine did those exorcisms either with a priest on the sly or whatever because the church wouldn't actually do them formally because he they, they wouldn't get him tested beforehand. In October 1980, the Warrens contacted Brookfield police to warn them that the situation was becoming dangerous. According to eyewitness testimony, Arnie Johnson coerced one of the demons purportedly within David to possess him while participating in David's exorcisms. Lorraine Warren explained that during one of the rituals, Johnson seemed to sacrifice himself to save the boy. Johnson leaped up and cried to the demon, come into me, I'll fight you, come into me, she recalled. His impassioned request worked, they claimed Johnson was possessed. According to reports, a few days after Johnson egged the demon on during the exorcism, he was attacked rather viciously by the demon, which allegedly took control of his car and forced it into a tree. Fortunately, Johnson was unharmed. After this incident, Johnson returned to the rental property to examine an old well that supposedly housed the demon. In both the dramatized version and his personal account, Johnson recollects that this was his final encounter with the demon while completely lucid. After encountering the demon at the well and making eye contact with it, 
he became possessed. The Warrens claimed to have warned him not to do this, meaning make eye contact with the demon. As David's condition worsened further, Debbie and Johnson, who had been living in her mother's home, decided it was time to move. Meanwhile, Debbie was hired by Alan Bono, a new resident in Brookfield, as a dog groomer. Debbie and Johnson began renting an apartment close to her place of employment. After moving in, Johnson started to exhibit odd behavior that was strikingly similar to David's, causing Debbie to fear that he had become possessed as well. According to Debbie, Johnson would fall into a trance-like state wherein he would growl and hallucinate but later have no memory of it. On February 16, 1981, Johnson called in sick to his job at Wright Tree Service and joined Debbie at the kennel where she worked, along with his sister Wanda and Debbie's nine-year-old cousin Mary. Bono, the couple's landlord and Debbie's employer, bought the group lunch at a local bar and proceeded to drink heavily. After lunch, the group returned to the kennel. Debbie then took the girls to get pizza, but insisted they return quickly, anticipating trouble. When they returned, Bono, intoxicated at this point, became agitated. Everyone left the room at Debbie's urging, except Bono, who seized Mary and refused to let her go. Johnson headed back to the apartment and ordered Bono to release Mary. Wanda recounted the following events to the police. Mary ran for the car as Debbie attempted to mitigate the situation by standing between the two men. Wanda tried, in vain, to pull Johnson away. Johnson, growling like an animal, then drew a five-inch pocket knife and stabbed Bono repeatedly. Bono died several hours later. According to Johnson's lawyer, Bono had suffered four or five tremendous wounds, mostly to his chest, and one that stretched from his stomach to the base of his heart. Johnson was discovered two miles from the site of the killing and was held at the Bridgeport Correctional Center on bail of 125000 This was the first unlawful killing in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut. The day after the killing, Lorraine Warren informed the Brookfield police that Johnson was in fact possessed when the crime was committed. His attorney, 33-year-old Martin Manila, told the Post ahead of the trial that he believed Bono's stab wounds were far too deep to have been done by human hands. He also told the paper that the potential for a demonic possession defense was introduced by the Warrens. I didn't come up with this, Manila said. This is what was presented to me. I went to see Ed and Lorraine and I decided to take the case after talking to them. They told me that when you're possessed, you have no control over your actions and that stuck in mind. A media blitz soon surrounded the story, fueled in part by the Warrens, whose agents promised that lectures, a book, and even a movie detailing the gruesome case were in the works. Martin Manila, Johnson's lawyer, received calls from all over the world about what was being called the demon murder, tr- murder trial. Manila traveled to England to meet with lawyers who had been involved in two similar cases, though neither went to trial. He planned to fly an exorcism specialist from Europe and threatened to subpoena the priests who oversaw David Glatzel's exorcisms if they did not cooperate with the defense. The trial took place in Connecticut Superior Court in Danbury beginning in October 28, 1981. Manila attempted to submit a plea of not guilty by virtue of possession, but the presiding judge, Robert Callahan, promptly rejected this defense. Callahan argued that no such defense could ever exist in a court of law due to lack of evidence and that it would be irrelevant and unscientific to allow related testimony. The defense chose to imply that Johnson acted in self-defense instead. Because of this, the jury was not legally allowed to consider demonic possession as a viable explanation for the killing. The jury deliberated for 15 hours over three days before convicting Johnson on November 24, 1981, of first-degree manslaughter. The incident led to the creation of a television film titled The Demon Murder Case on NBC and preparations for a feature film, the production of which was stalled due to internal conflicts. In 1983, Gerard Brittle, with the assistance of Lorraine Warren, published a book about the incident entitled The Devil in Connecticut. Lorraine Warren stated that profits for the book were shared with the family. Sources confirmed that 2000 was paid to the family by the book publisher. Upon the book's republication in 2006 by iUniverse, David Glatzel and his brother Carl Glatzel Jr. sued the authors of the book 
for violating their right to privacy, libel, and intentional affliction of emotional distress. Carl also claimed that the book alleged he committed criminal and abusive acts against his family and others. He said that the possession story was a hoax concocted by Ed and Lorraine Warren to exploit the family and his brother's mental illness, and that the book presented him as the villain because he did not believe in the supernatural claims. He asserted that the Warrens told him the story would make the family millionaires and would help get Johnson out of jail. According to Carl Glatzel, the publicity generated by the incident forced him to drop out of school and lose friends and business opportunities. In 2007, he began writing a book titled Alone Through the Valley, about his version of the event surrounding his brother. Lorraine Warren defended her work with the family, saying that the six priests who were involved in the incident agreed at the time that the boy was indeed possessed and that the supernatural events she described were real. Brittle, author of The Devil in Connecticut, says he wrote the book because the family wanted the story told that he possesses video of over 100 hours of his interviews with the family, and that they signed off on the book as accurate before it went to print. Glatzel's father, Carl Glatzel Sr., denies telling the authors that his son was possessed. Johnson and Debbie, however, who are now married, wholeheartedly support the Warrens' account of demonic possession and have stated that the Glatzels in question are suing simply for monetary purposes. The Warrens, who are now dead, said the freed Johnson learned to conquer his demon on his own. Possession doesn't last 24 hours a day, Ed Warren told the AP at the time. It comes quickly and leaves quickly. Arnie understands what happened to him. He knows now if something happens, how to ward it off, and he won't be stupid enough to take on the devil again. And that's the story of how the devil made me do it. Jeez. Anything with Ed and Lorraine, I always have to take with a grain of salt. I know. And it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, obviously, so there's, there's, I just hole, don't get why, there's always why holes there in were, their, yeah. Why the refusal for a psychiatric evaluation prior to an exorcism? I don't understand. I don't know. Um, they also, there's video, like, there's audio footage of this mm-hmm. kid going through shit. So, like, right. There's definitely evidence of something happening to this right. kid. And it right. is like, it It doesn't seem like a regular, I don't know. I really don't know mm-hmm. what someone who is the difference between a demonic possession and, and a psychotic break looks like. Mm-hmm. Like, I've never seen the difference, so I can't speak on it. <laughs> right. um, I only assume that maybe they didn't want to get him psychologically evaluated for a couple of reasons potentially cost related um Mm -hmm. the costs uh, of doing that uh also like basically saying to this 11 year old child that there's something mentally wrong with him and how that could affect him as well i mean Mm -hmm. saying that you're possessed by a demon probably wouldn't help either but I feel like maybe they felt there was less there's less stigma around it. I'm I don't sure. I don't know. I really don't know. Um Yeah. But regardless, then it moves on to Arnie. So like So then, the fact it moves right? on to Arnie is the whole like how like okay, so there's 43 demons in this kid. They were doing some shit trying to get the demons out and one of the demons latched on to Arnie apparently. Right. And right. Both the mother, though, both the mother and the daughter, I understand why the daughter, because that's her boyfriend, would maybe want to defend him, maybe want to say, we, I, right. saw, I saw the demon latch on to him, whatever. But the right. mother said it as well. So it's like, true. well, I mean, is it, is it her just defending her daughter's boyfriend too? Like, what's the, what's, what's the reason for protecting this boy? And yeah, that's true. And so I will say, too, he was let go after five years because of good behavior. Okay. So it feels as if whether or not there was a demonic possession here, that this guy is probably not a criminal by nature and maybe doesn't have mm-hmm. like a criminal mind and was potentially defending a situation that was out of hand and I'm surprised that they did convict him, even if it was self-defense. I feel like he was defending somebody else. That's the problem. It wasn't he was defending That's himself. True. That's so, true. 
there's there's a lot of moving elements in this scenario and i also want to know if there were 43 demons in this kid and one left what happened to the rest of them where are the other 40 42 42 go like so they got rid of all 42 except for this one right (laughs) just i don't confusion i don't know and i'm really confused about why he was in a well all of a sudden like why was the demon just like i guess he was following arnie around but he like latched on to him but like why the well like i don't don't i'm also confused about how they're saying like oh demons just they leave when they want to leave i'm like no i thought their whole purpose was to like take your soul like i thought that was the whole reason for i feel as well like that is more like they're taking a um not an actual demon but like your demons so like your traumas and using that as like oh yeah they come and go (laughs) got it yeah it's like okay well that that's fair (laughs) but that doesn't mean that he was possessed by an actual demon by an actual demon right. right oh my gosh All right, well, before I tell my story, I guess we should probably take a quick break. Yeah, let's take a little bit of a break. And you guys can digest that. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, so... We're back. And I decided to do the story of Michael Taylor, which I had never heard before mm-hmm. writing this story. So I'm excited because this is uh, crazy. So in 1974, the Taylor family consisted of husband Michael, wife Christine, their five children, and their family dog. The family were settled in Osset, England, and their home was considered cheerful and happy by many close friends and family members. Michael was always described as a gentle and loving husband uh, and father to the family. The only hardship that seemed to befall the family was that a few years prior, Michael had suffered from a back injury. This resulted in his unemployment and chronic pain, which then manifested itself into depression. Other than this, their life seemed to be happy and fulfilling. So in Osset, majority of the people were extremely religious and most were Christian, but the Taylors were not overly religious. They didn't really go to mass. They didn't really have a relationship with the church at all. But Michael did have a friend named Barbara Wardman, and she was very religious. And she thought that it would do Michael good to introduce him to a group called the Christian Fellowship Group, which was led by a woman named Marie Robinson. So Michael meets Marie and he starts spending like an insane amount of time with her. Some people would say that it was an inappropriate amount of time. Michael started attending all of the meetings with this group. He would even join Marie in the congregations where they would exercise people of their sins and they would speak in tongues. And Michael and Marie would even have private rituals together. They would stay up all night and make the sign of the cross at each other all night long. They thought this ritual would ward off the evil power of the full moon. So, I mean, just a lot of like, really, yeah, like, (laughs) okay, Uh, like a wild Friday night. Um, So soon the rest of the congregation was talking shit about Michael and Marie's weird relationship. And I mean, obviously, like, who wouldn't at that point? So... 
Obviously, now that Michael is spending all of this time with Marie and her congregation, things at home are not going as well as they used to go. Michael is very rarely at home. He almost never sees his family. And when he does see his family, he's irritated by them. He's very abrasive towards them. Just not a very pleasant guy to be around. So basically a complete 180 from the sweet and doting family man that he used to be. Right. His family chalk up this new attitude and persona to the church group that he's now a part of. They think that the church is a bad influence on him and his wife, Christine, has started hearing about this weird relationship with Marie. And so she also started noticing Michael's relationship with her was inappropriate for a married man. So Christine is obviously pissed and she ends up attending one of their congregations And I'm not sure if the family was like attending these regularly with him or if they attended them sporadically. Right. But either way, she's at this one congregation. And during it, she decides that she's going to publicly accuse Michael of being unfaithful with Marie. So this sets Michael off, but not at who you would think. Instead of being upset with Christine and lashing out at her, Michael takes his aggression out on Marie. He said that he felt an evil influence. Yeah, he said that he felt an evil influence cast a shadow over him. And because of this evil force, he lashed out at Marie verbally and physically. And it got so bad that several of the churchgoers had to step in to restrain him because they were worried that he was going to seriously injure himself or Marie. So... Marie described the attack, uh, and so she's quoted as as saying, I suddenly glanced at Mike and his whole features changed. He almost looked bestial. He kept looking at me and there was a really wild look in his eyes. I started screaming at him out of fear. I started speaking in tongues and Mike also screamed at me in tongues. I was on the verge of death and I seemed to come to my senses. I knew that the that only the name of Jesus would save me. And I just started saying over and over again, Jesus. When Christine heard me calling on the name of Jesus, she started saying it too. And I believe firmly that it was only by calling on his name that I was not killed. Michael has no memory of the incident. The very next day, Marie absolved him of the incident and welcomed him back to the group with open arms. But the rest of the group was like, no, thanks. We'll keep our distance. Like, we'll keep an eye on him. They were not like trusting of him, but he was still allowed to come back to like their congregations. Um, so even though Marie right. took him back, Michael continued with his out of character behavior and he got worse as time went on. It got to the point where several ministers in the community ended up be, like we, they ended up calling on them to come and help. And they came to the conclusion that demonic forces were behind Michael's change in personality. Eventually, the local vicar advised that an exorcism should be performed on Michael. So two ministers, Father Peter Vincent and Reverend Raymond Smith, came to do the exorcism. It was scheduled for midnight on October 5th, 1974 at the St. Thames Church in Barnsley. The Christian Fellowship Group were in attendance and the ritual went all through the night and into the next morning. So almost as soon as the exorcism started, Michael went bonkers. He was spitting, scratching, convulsing, you name it. They ended up needing to tie him with restraints to the floor. The exorcism went on for eight hours and through the entire thing, Michael was still trying to bite and maim anyone who came near him. The priests claimed that there were 40 demons inside of Michael and they had to be forcefully removed one by one. By the time the eight hours had gone by, the priests decided that they had to stop because they were exhausted and that they were going to have to finish the exorcism at a later date, which I didn't know was a thing. Um, The priests, right? Like, yeah, what? Where does he go? Just to tie him up? You're going to find out. It's so great. Um, um, The priests, the priests also claim that there were still three demons that remained inside of Michael. The demons of insanity, anger and murder. There was an attendee named Margaret. Right. There was an attendee named Margaret Smith who claims that she heard God speaking to her telling her that they had to finish the exorcism or Michael would murder Christine. 
So she speaks up and she advises the priests, but the priests brush her off and they tell Michael and Christine to go home and rest and that they would prepare for the final part of the exorcism, which was supposed to be done the very next day. So God bless you, uh, Margaret, but didn't work. At around 9.45 the next morning, not even two hours after Michael and Christine were told to go home and rest, a police officer was passing through the Taylor's neighborhood. He was coming around the corner. His name was Officer Ian Walker, and he saw a man stumbling around the middle of the street, naked and covered in blood. Ian Walker stopped the car. Mm -hmm. He approached the man. The man went into the fetal position and started screaming over and over, quote, this is the blood of Satan. The man was Michael Taylor, in case you guys didn't know that. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Shocker. Wow. (laughs) The officer called for an ambulance because he was afraid that Michael had hurt himself or someone else. I mean, good call. He is covered head to toe in blood. Um, In the article that I read, it described him as being like slick with the blood. Like it was like. That's. So in the Arnie case, too, he was found just wandering around covered in blood as well, which is very interesting. Yeah, this is like this. Michael continued to rant and rave about Satan, and he continued screaming about it while he was loaded into the ambulance and taken away. Obviously, this attracts like a bunch of people from the neighborhood who come out and they tell the officer the identity of the man and they tell him where he lives. So the officer calls for backup and he proceeds to the Taylor's address. So Walker makes his way to the Taylor house and there are officers that are already at the scene, which is weird because he's like on the road, right? So he should have been the first one to get there. But apparently concerned neighbors had heard that there was something going on and they already phoned the police. So as Walker was making his way to the door, his inspector came out vomiting and said, quote, you don't want to see this one, son. I've never seen I've seen nothing like it before. And I've seen a few. It's the wife. She's got no. No, he's ripped at her son. It's a right mess (gasps) in there. There's not much of her left. You don't want to see it. End quote. Yeah. So. Like, that seems like it goes beyond just, like, oh, a girl. crime of passion or, like, oh, yeah. like wanting to just kill so somebody. Walker ignores him, and he goes in anyway. The front room was completely destroyed. There was blood, flesh, and brain matter covering every surface in the room. On the floor lay... Yeah. On the floor what? lay the remains of Christine Taylor and the family dog. Both almost on... Un- Oh my God, yeah. no. Both of them were almost unrecognizable. At around 9.30 in the morning, Michael had killed Christine in their family home. Michael had strangled Christine and tore her face off. No murder weapon was used. He did it with his bare hands. Yeah. Excuse so sorry you? sorry to tell you that. And then, yeah, the, at this point, the articles that I was reading got really, really gory in regards to her and the dog's injuries. And I don't really feel it, that it's necessary to like read them out for shock value. Yeah, we don't want to so glorify If you guys want to read about it, you yeah, can. No. But I just I decided to not include more than what I've already said here, because what I've already said is like bad enough. And it's it is so much worse than what I've said. Um. Yeah, so it was described as the most horrific scene that any officer who attended it had ever seen. After Michael was released from the hospital, he was taken into police custody. Inspector Brian and oh, and they did like um like a basically to see if he was like competent to be questioned by police and he was. So, Inspector Brian Smith asked him what had happened, and Michael replied, "It was a long night." They danced around me and burned my cross because it was tainted with evil. They had me in the church all night. Look at my hands. I was banging on the floor. The power was in me. I couldn't get rid of it and neither could they. They were too late. I was compelled by a force within me to destroy everything living within the house. Michael claims he couldn't remember anything and insisted that he loved his wife Inspector Smith asked him how he felt and he replied, released. I am released. It is done. The evil, the evil in her has been destroyed. Michael Taylor was charged with murdering his wife and he was sent to Broadmoor Secure Hospital to await trial. 
The trial was set to start in March 1975, and when it started, the jury was advised that the evidence they were about to hear would make it difficult to believe that they were not back in the Middle Ages. So Michael testified that he had no recollection of the murder, that he loved his wife, and that he was under the control of evil supernatural forces, and he also thought that Christine was possessed by demons as well. His defense decided that their best bet was to discredit the Christian fellowship group and the priests who performed the exorcism. They said that the group was a fanatical cult who had managed to influence Michael with powerful mind control and indoctrination, which only further exacerbated his mental illness, which I agree. Um, Yeah, yeah. that makes that sense. And the prosecution, actually, the people who are like charging him also placed blame on the exorcism. They also believed that the ritual had only made Michael's mental illness worse and that coupled with the warped ideologies that the Christian fellowship group had instilled in Michael, it ended up pushing him into a state of madness. Michael's defense lawyer made a personal statement in the trial, which usually doesn't happen, and he said, I am aware that it is generally regarded as improper for an advocate to express any personal feeling or opinion about the case in which he is engaged. I am afraid I find it quite impossible to observe such constraints in this case. Let those who truly are responsible for this killing stand up. We submit that Taylor is a mere cipher. The real guilt lies elsewhere. Religion is the key. Those who have been referred to in evidence, and those clerics in particular, should be with him in spirit now. In this building and each day he is incarcerated in Broadmoor, and not least on the day that he must endure the bitter reunion with his five motherless children. The jury found Michael not guilty by reason of insanity. He would spend two years at Broadmoor Secure Hospital and then another two years at Broadmoor Royal Infirmary, uh, and he was then released to the public. After the case, there was a huge public outcry regarding the use of exorcisms in the church, and it did end up becoming the last exorcism that was performed by the Anglican Church. They did, yeah, they did defend themselves. The priests that were involved continued to insist that Michael was absolutely possessed by demons. Father Vincent's career was unaffected after the case, and Reverend Raymond Smith agreed that the situation was not handled properly and that the exorcism had failed. But again, they are swearing he was possessed. Right. After Michael was released, he went back to live in Osset. Michael somehow managed to largely stay out of the public eye until July of 2005. He was arrested for sexual harassment and inappropriate conduct with an underage girl. Yeah. During the court hearing, he admitted his fault, but then he asked, am I going to Broadmoor for murdering my wife? He's There's something off. And he needs to he he's clearly not like in the in real life. Yes. Like he's he's out. So of reality. he was in custody for a week because of the sexual assault and his psychiatric psychiatric problems from 1975 came to the surface once again. But as soon as he was bailed out, they disappeared. He ended up with three years of community service with a condition of psychiatric treatment. And I'm going to end the story with a quote from Officer Ian Walker. And he says, Of all the incidents in which I was involved in 30 years of police work, nothing affected me like this one. The stupidity and futility of it all, the complete and utter waste of life and destruction of a family, not to mention the death and other traumas, are far beyond anything else I have ever come across. Obviously, my wife asked questions, But there are some things that you do not take home, and this was one of them. However, within the next 24 to 48 hours, the news hit the national papers and the TV news bulletins. You just bury it and get on with your life as best you can. Before this event, I was agnostic, and now I'm an atheist. And that is the story of the possession and exorcism of Michael Taylor and the murder of Christine Taylor. That's very sad and uh, unfortunate. And I, I'd like to know what was actually going on between him and Mary. Mm-hmm. Like, 
Like, was there something going on? And, like, was he just covering it up? Or was it really, like, was this church just f- fucking with his, I th- his mind? I really like, think the church was just fucking with his mind. I think he had mental problems. His back? Yeah, he was susceptible <laughs> to things that probably could have warped his from perceptions. What I, and, but From I, what I remember, his back injury was from falling off of a bridge. So who's to say that he didn't also have, like, a... A traumatic head injury. I think he was, I think they were fanatical. I think his defense lawyer was, or the, whoever said it, I think it was his defense lawyer, was correct in saying that. Um, They definitely were not normal. And I'm thinking that, you know, him and Marie sitting in the same room making the sign of the cross at each other all throughout the night to ward off the evil powers of a full moon is like there's something not right there like it's like there's just something not correct so um yeah there's something there's something not right and any therapy that could have helped him through whatever mental trauma he could have experienced whatever this was doing the reverse absolutely like this was just making him and so then you take this man who's like already you know in a bad mental state and then you make him stay up all through the night and into the next morning while you're you're gonna get a psychotic break there he said that they were pouring holy water on him that they were shoving crucifixes into his mouth like he's being traumatized he has mental problems and then he's being told you have three demons still inside of you and one of them is murder and then he goes home and commits murder like yeah oh lord yeah so yeah. I don't know if it was an actual possession or not. They're swearing up and down it was, but who knows? <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Who Either knows? way, it's in tragic. In both cases, who knows? Yeah. It's just odd, like in both cases, they there was a lot of similarities, especially with, A, the amount of demons. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say that actually odd. during your story, but yeah. And I wonder, because I was going to ask, this one was around 1975, and the Arnie case was in 1981. And I wonder if because of previous cases and exorcisms not working or people not wanting exorcisms to take place, if that's why the church was so against doing this David Glatzel exorcism Maybe. to begin with and why Lorraine and Ed had to kind of step in and say, OK, well, we'll do our mm-hmm. own, um, which may or may not have been the right thing to do. Because they're obviously not, I don't know, who knows. Anyway, well, I guess we can move on to our Fuck, Mary Kills, which are (laughs) interesting. Um, So we've decided to do um, actors who were possessed in movies by the devil or whoever else or demons or whoever. So, yes. Do you want to go first? Um, Sure. So I will do... Emily Rose from The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Okay. George Lutz from The Amityville Horror. Mm, okay. And I will do Katie from Paranormal Activity. Oh, okay. 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 Um, so Emily Rose, I feel I will kill. Mm-hmm. I think. Just because. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think I'll just kill okay. her because I just think she's that's a so she's a weirdo. Um, okay. I would like to marry Amityville guy because George Lutz. I fe- yeah, I feel like if we took him out of the house, we'd live like a great life. Like everything that's would be fine. Fair. That's um, fair. And the girl from Paranormal Activity, I wouldn't want to marry, nor would I really want to kill her because I feel like she's not that bad like she's not she doesn't oh. gross me out like she, I, don't, <laughs> okay. I mean she's 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 obviously has she's obviously <laughs> to, like possessed but I yeah, feel yeah. like she only got possessed sometimes so I feel like I could maybe like like hit it and quit it pretty quick fair okay okay so I'll go with that okay I think I would switch okay um Emily Rose and Katie yeah okay, Katie terrifies me she, yeah fair her enough. whole like origin story too is that like she was born into a mm-hmm. family of witches and shit like that right where it's yes, like yes we're taking the firstborn son type thing yeah as a sacrifice um but like like 
So I'd be afraid if I have sex with her whenever am I going to get pregnant? She's going to take my baby away. And then also just like I would be afraid to get like physically close to her. Like hmm. she scares the shit out of me. Really? Emily okay. Rose, I feel like she had moments in time where she wasn't showing obvious signs of possession so I feel like I could be like okay now's our time to get it on and then George Lutz I'm same as you we just got to get him out of the house and then we're fine yeah we're fine yeah happily ever after right okay that's fair I I stand by mine but I also identify with understand my reasonings yeah yeah okay so my three are Sigourney Weaver and Ghostbusters um okay I didn't write down the name of what she, what her name was, but yeah. Uh, Jonah Hill in This is the End. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about that one. Yeah. Yeah. And Jack Nicholson um, as Jack Taurus in The Shining. Okay. I'm killing Jack. Yes, yeah, that's, that's scary. He's horrifying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like just because this is the mm-hmm. end and Ghostbusters are like comedy movies. So yeah, I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll sense. marry Jonah and I'll have sex with Sigourney. <laughs> I agree. I agree with everything okay. you just said. Sweet. We're on the same Perfect. page. Awesome. All right. Well. All right. Um. That's that's another episode of Paranormal. That's this episode. Yeah. Thanks for hanging out with us. <laughs> and uh, do we have any do we have any housekeeping to to go through? Not really. No, not really. Nothing going on. Um, rate, review, and subscribe for yes, us. Yes, do that. We would love that. We've been posting a lot of our reviews on our Instagram, so maybe you'll see your review come mm-hmm. up. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, stay spooky. Yeah, because our show is baby. Baby. <laughs> Bye. Bye. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network.